pastor is going to come up and answer the question. And the question is, we talked about the Sabbath. We agree that the Sabbath is the Sabbath. But do I really need to come to church on Sabbath morning? Or can I just, you know, do my own thing? And he's got his own mic, so I'll just put this away. <clears throat> All right, well, let's take our answer from the Bible. And... Uh, I like to get my answers from there. Amen? <laughs> well, in, you can write this down or look it up, but in Leviticus chapter 23, in verse 3, it talks about, uh, or it says that for six days work shall be done, but the seventh day of the Sabbath is the Sabbath of complete rest. And then it says something right after that. It says, a holy convocation. You shall do no work work it is the sabbath of the lord in all your dwellings and so that tells us two things there <clears throat> and one thing that it tells us when it says the sabbath uh, it is the sabbath of the lord in all your dwellings means wherever you are it's the sabbath so just because you come may come to church <clears throat> when you leave church doesn't mean you can go out and do work or uh, you know we, we don't go out to eat we don't uh, go shopping, clean the house. It's the Sabbath. It's, it's rest. And so just because you go to a restaurant, you say, well, I'm not working. I'm just going out to eat. But you're causing someone else to have to work. So if everybody kept the Sabbath, then they wouldn't have, businesses wouldn't be open on the Sabbath, right? And so we, we don't want to be a stumbling block for anyone, and so we don't go out to eat. So that's what that part of the thing that it tells us there, the Sabbath and all your dwellings. But it also, when it says a holy convocation, so a holy convocation is a, a calling together, as uh, the Amplified Version puts it, but a convocation, convocation is, uh, is a meeting place, a meeting together. And so uh, we should meet together on the Sabbath with like believers and worship together. And then uh, you say, well, Pastor, I'm just not sold on that Old Testament verse, even though we are Bible believing Christians and not just New Testament Christians, but let's go to the New Testament in uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse uh, 25. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 25, it says, Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but let us exhort one another, especially as you see the day approaching. So what day do you think that's talking about, the capital D? Yeah. Yeah, the second coming. And so um, you could say that, or you could also say that it's talking about the Day of Atonement. And I believe there's, uh, there's evidence to, to support uh, either one there. But uh, the, and if we're living in the time of the Day of Atonement now, how much more important is it to meet together on Sabbath to encourage one another, which is what this is talking about. It says, not forsaking the assembling, right? The assembling of ourselves together. And so when we, uh, when we worship on the Sabbath, when we keep the Sabbath, we need, to, we need to come together and worship together. You know, of course, there are times when you might, uh, it might justify to, to stay home or something else. Maybe you're sick. Uh, just not feeling well, but that should not be a regular practice of, you know, staying at home. We should come together uh, weekly 
and worship, uh, worship our Lord together with like believers. Amen? Amen. All right, so getting the answers from, from the Bible there. Uh, because it's easy just to say, you know, well, I'm going to keep the Sabbath at home, but I'm going to, you know, I want to continue going to my church on Sunday. And that's fine. You want to go to church, your church on Sunday. But um, the Bible does say meeting together on the Sabbath. So if you want to go to church on both days, that's fine with, <laughs> that's fine. You can go to church every day, as we've kind of been doing here, right? Except for two nights a week, right? Coming to church. But on the Sabbath specifically, we're told from God's Word that we should meet together with like believers and uh, worship our Lord together. And so that sometimes poses some difficulty because of you know, your, the habit of, uh, and lifestyle that you may be living. As, uh, maybe you're used to doing things on the Sabbath that you've, we've learned recently that maybe the Lord would not uh, approve of. And so now it's time to, to start uh, changing that lifestyle again to be in accordance with, with God's Word. And uh, thankfully, the Bible tells us that, uh, that God winks in our ignorance. And so maybe before you didn't know that, but now that we do, God does hold us accountable. And so we want to we put our lives in, in line with what God's Word tells us. Amen? Amen. All right. <clears throat> well, tonight we're going to talk about Jesus on hell fire. Jesus on hell. And so, this topic tonight, uh, many Christians have a, a, uh, an understanding of what this, top, what this uh, topic is, but there are also opposing ideas out there, just like the topic of death, what happens after you die. And so, as we go into God's Word, just pray that God will reveal the truth to you in what, uh, what His Word says. Uh, we're going to examine much of Scripture but um, before I get too, too much into the topic, though, I'd like to do what we, always like, what we always do, and that's say a word of prayer. So if you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us again this evening. Lord, you've, come not <clears throat> you've been with us night after night as we've opened up your word. <clears throat> we ask that you would uh, give us wisdom. Send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. And Lord... Uh, Speak through me. Give me clear speech. Clear thoughts. Give us all clear thoughts, Lord, and uh, wisdom to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever visited hell before? I'm not talking about hell, Michigan here. But have you ever visited hell? Well, thousands of people visit hell each year. And most of them hope that they don't have to stay very long. It's extremely hot with a barren, jagged landscape. You certainly would not want to spend the rest of your life in extreme heat and in this desolate spot. Hell is a group of short, black, limestone formations located in the Grand Cayman, Cayman Islands. And thousands of tourists visit there each year. It's located in West Bay and it's about half the size of an American football field. Viewing platforms allow visitors to take photographs and, uh, of this very interesting and amazing geological formation. It's a, a unique formation which is characterized by the jaggy, spongy 
pinnacles of black covered limestone. The formation is produced when algae interact with the limestone present there at, at this location and create a decaying death-like appearance. It forms this, these rock formations. And so it, it almost appears as if the entire place was scorched and completely destroyed. There are numerous versions of how hell received its name, but the most popular is the idea that when people looked at this blackened, isolated location, they exclaimed, my, this is what hell must look like. And so it is also claimed that the name hell is derived from the fact that if a pebble is thrown, into, thrown out into the formation, it echoes among the limestone peaks and valleys and sounds as if the pebble is falling all the way down to hell. But regardless of how, the first, how it first came to be called hell, the name struck, <coughs> sorry, the name stuck and the idea or the area has become a tourist attraction featuring fire engine red hell themed post office from which they, you can send postcards from hell. Uh, from, and the gift shop with souvenirs from hell. Ironically, some of the stores in the area feature prominent quotations from the Bible on their sides. Maybe it is time to discover what hell is really like. So is hell a spot at the center of the earth? Are millions suffering there right now? Would a loving God torture people in hell for millions of years has been the question on many Christians' minds, many people's minds. Let's see what the Bible really has to say about hell, and we will discover something far more amazing than a desolate location called hell in the Cayman Islands. And so when it comes to this subject especially, and all subjects, we need to go to the Bible for our answers. If it's in the Bible, I believe it. If it disagrees with the Bible, it's not for me. Is that everybody's, everybody agree with that? Okay, good. And so many traditions about hell actually disagree with some very plain statements about God's judgments that we find in the Bible. The book of Revelation describes a lake of fire on the surface of the earth, a huge inferno in which those who are, who are at war with God are consumed. And here is how it describes the destruction of those who, led by Satan, try to take the city of God at the end of the millennium, as we talked about last night. Remember, we're, uh, we talked about a couple nights ago how we're lining up the fence posts, right? The fence posts of truth. And so some of the things that, that we said the last couple of, of nights may have uh, been a little confusing because it doesn't line up with some of the fence posts that, you've already, that you already have in place in your own mind. And so now we're lining up the fence posts of this topic here. But let's see what this says. Revelation 20 verse 9 says, They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And so in our study on the millennium last night, we learned that Jesus, when Jesus returns to the earth, He resurrects the righteous dead, those who are, have committed their lives to Him during their lifetime. And they, these come forth from their graves and rise to meet the Lord in the air. Together with the righteous living, they ascend to heaven and they spend 1,000 years with Him there. Those who have rejected the Holy Spirit, speaking to their hearts, are terrified 
uh, at the second coming. They cry for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, and they are slain by the brightness of the coming of Christ. During the thousand years, the earth is desolate of all human life, and Satan is bound here with his wicked angels for the entire millennium. At the end of the 1,000 years, God is in an amazing display both of power and grace. It moves the, he moves the very headquarters of the universe, the capital of the universe, to this planet that, uh, that has been the scene of such rebellion and suffering. Okay, we saw that last night. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, the camp of saints, it descends to this earth. The wicked are resurrected, and during their, during their lifetimes, they gave their allegiance to Satan. And when they are resurrected, they immediately fall into the rank under Satan's leadership at the legions of the lost. Uh, the, uh, sorry, and they rush up and take this, try to take the city. All right, so verse 9 continues and it says, And then fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. What do you think of when you think of that word devoured? Destroyed, right? So, consumed. Okay, good. So I think of eating. Probably shouldn't think of eating so much. It's probably why I need to lose a little bit of weight. But, uh, but when I think of devoured, I think of you know, I really like tacos, some really good tacos, right? And you put some really good tacos in front of me, and guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to devour them. That's correct. That's correct. And so, is there anything left after that? No, there's not. But it says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So the Bible describes this judgment as the second death. Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about the second death? We might describe it this way. The first death is the death that we each die as a natural result of living in a sinful world. Well, the second death is an eternal death. And as the result of a personal rebellion against God. The second death results in not simply because we are born in a world of sin, but because we have chosen a way of sin. And so this eternal death occurs at the end of the 1,000 years. The, the wicked are now resurrected. With Satan, they attack the city. They... Uh, the record of their lives is shown before God and they recognize that God is fair, God is just, and at that moment, fire comes down from God out of heaven. The lake of fire occurs and they experience the second death. And out of the ashes of the world, God recreates the new world. So listen to the description that is given of that new world. Revelation 21 verse 1. And so just so you just to set the context here, we we just had all of this take place, the second coming, the 1000 years, at the end of the 1000 years, the second resurrection, they'd go to overtake the city and then uh, before they're allowed to overtake the city, 
they are shown the record of their lives and that's when they confess that Jesus is fair and he's righteous and true and they are then uh, because it's too late and they've already made their decision though they've are thrown into the lake of fire and this is all taking place on earth because remember the holy city comes down it's all taking place on earth and then the so hellfire it destroys the earth but then right here look revelation 21 verse 1 now i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and so hellfire is taking place on earth and now there is a new earth taking uh, that has been recreated here in verse 4 it says and god will wipe away every tear from their eyes there shall be no more death no more sorrow no more crying there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away and so the earth the, if hellfire was here on earth and then there was a recreation of that then that must mean there is no more hellfire at some point there that hellfire is not going to continue going on and on and on because there's a new earth it's been recreated and in this new earth there's no more pain and no more suffering no more dying and in order for that verse to be true then there, there mu it must mean that hellfire is not taking place the everlasting torture is not taking place because there's no more suffering it says when this new earth is is uh, is here and so God, God wants to deal with sin in a way that he will do away with it forever. I think we'd all agree that we want God to do away with sin forever. Amen? And so God wants to do away with suffering forever. He wants to do away with pain forever. God wants to do away with physical affliction forever. But what about the lake of fire? What about hell? Well, how can you take... How can you have a lake of fire burning on the surface of the earth forever and then the earth made new? How can Jesus wipe away all tears from their eyes if our loved ones are continually burning and uh, are being burned in unimaginable torment forever and ever? Because if I, I, if I have any, you know, there are family members that I have that are not following God right now and sadly if they don't surrender their their lives to him before he comes then this is where they will be and to know that they're there and i'm here how can how would that not affect me throughout eternity if they're burning throughout eternity but it's uh so it's ap it's uh, it's amazing to think that some christians would want to hold on to the idea of god burning people in hell for trillions and trillions of years would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? I wouldn't want to do that to my worst enemy. Do you know that many evangelical Christian leaders are discovering the truth about hell that, I, that I'm going to share with you tonight uh, from the Bible? And if you go to a Christian bookstore today, uh, many leading Bible scholars are writing expositions on the truth of what the Bible teaches about hell. For example, Dr. John Stott the respected and world-famous Anglican Bible expositor and author, he rejected the doctrine of an eternally burning hell. Another one, Dr. Edward Fudge, uh, a well-respected Bible scholar, completed a well-documented comprehensive study on the biblical truth of hell titled The Fire That Consumes. And I've seen a copy of this book, and it's, uh, 
It's pretty thick. It's about this thick. So he, he's, uh, he spent many years compiling uh, what the Bible said about that and, and really trying to understand it. Wrote a, a, a book there. He also, um, not too long ago, there was a, uh, a Christian organization that did a, a movie about it. I don't know if you've seen this one, Hell and Mr. Fudge. Talked about his experience in going through that and how other Christians were treating him because it was going against what they believed. But he was just trying to preach the Bible. And uh, anyways, we'll have this as a giveaway um, on Friday night if you want to, uh, to come. But uh, this book also is kind of a shorter version of this one up on the screen. But uh, it says, what, the Bible, what does the Bible actually say about hell? Hell, a final word. And so, anyways, uh, so as this isn't just this isn't just a uh, some information that that our church holds because it's new, but it's something that people are other people are discovering in the Christian world. This is something that has been around uh, for many years, and uh, these all of these scholars they realize the idea of an ever burning hell for trillions and trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine and it is blasphemy to a God of love. Many Christians though they have honest questions. Here are some questions that uh, that you might have along the way or maybe you've had before. I know these are questions that I've and talking to people uh, that uh, that they have had and, uh, and so since Revelation 20 verse 9 describes the wicked being burnt and hell taking place right here in the, in the earth and the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 21, says that this earth will then be recreated. Where is hell going to be burning for all of eternity? All right, next one is how does God in Revelation 20 verse pronounce no more pain, no more dying, no more death, no more tears if he is still allowing burning pain and tears to take place? If immortality is based on the tree of life, how do those who are in hell continue to live on forever? Do they think that someone is in there sneaking them some fruit every now and, then, now and again? Well, even if that were the case, they would have to choose to eat it just for the purpose of continuing to suffer forever and ever. Right? So that, uh, that's question three. Question four, if eternal life is a gift of God, that must be received in order to possess how do those who have not received it live forever in hell? And if God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, from Ezekiel 33, verse 11, if it's painful for him even to see the wicked destroyed, do you want me to believe that God is going to put himself through the eternal of torture, through the eternal suffering of torturing these people forever? Number six, how does one rectify an eternal punishing because of temporal deeds? Punishment should fit the crime, right? So, number seven, what purpose does the wicked suffering nonstop for all of existence ever accomplish? Eight, if the wicked go straight to hell after death, what is the purpose of the second coming and a future judgment? We've talked about already. Number nine, if even among the, secu the secular society in a wicked and fallen world, the idea of unending punishment is considered sadistic, cruel, unfair, and unthinkable, 
how in the world do we imagine it being accepted among the perfectly holy, fair, merciful, and loving society of heaven? And Ezekiel 28 says that, or if Ezekiel 28 says that there is a coming time when Satan will no longer exist, when he will be no more, it says, how can he be forever alive, suffering in hell? Number 12, a couple more questions here. How is the punishment proportionate to the offense? As is taught in Matthew 12, 1248, if everyone from the soccer mom who has just never accepted Christ to Lucifer himself, they get the same endless punishment. If the wages of sin is eternal punishing rather than death, how did Jesus pay the full price for sin by dying if he is not still being punished? And so those are some questions that I've had, uh, and those are questions that some others that I've studied with have had. Here are uh, three more questions that we're going to directly attack tonight, although it will answer many of the questions that we have, uh, that we just went through. And so... Here, when, when does hell occur? Is it burning in the center of the earth now? Number two is how long does hell last? And three, how can a loving God destroy those he loves? This question alone has caused more people to turn away from God probably than any other. I've talked with many people and studied with many people who said, you know, I, I can no longer believe in God. I don't, I don't want to uh, believe in a God that can punish people in hell uh, eternally. And so they've chosen not to follow God because of their misunderstanding of this topic. And so these are all good questions, don't you think? Don't you think we can trust the Bible to give us clear te a clear teaching on the topic that is as important as this one? Yes, okay, good. And so let's look at each question briefly and give an over to give an overview, then explore the subject more in depth. First, where does hell occur and is it happening now? Malachi 4 verse 1, for behold the day is coming burning like an oven and all the proud, yes all do wickedly, will be stubble. And so has this day come yet? No, because the Bible says behold the day is coming burning like an oven and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. The destruction of the wicked occurs at the end of time. Does the Bible say the, the wicked go to hell when they die? And they are in hell now? And they are being burned up? Well, my Bible says that the day is coming shall burn them up. 2 Peter 3.7 also indicates that this cleansing of the world by fire is future. Here it is. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And so if hell were a hot spot in the center of the earth, it wouldn't be reserved, right? So we know it's not here now. Malachi 4.1 said, the day is coming. 2 Peter 3.7 said, they are reserved to judgment. And so when do the fires of hell occur? They occur at the end of time, right? All right, and so in, if the judgment 
is future, then the wicked are not burning right now. Just like we learned uh, a couple of nights ago, that when you die, you go to sleep, and you are awaiting either the first resurrection or the second resurrection. And so the next question, number two, is how long does hell last? Well, the Bible makes it clear that it lasts until it gets the job done. Hebrews 12, 29. God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire to sin wherever it is found. Malachi 4, verse 3. For or you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that do this, says the Lord of hosts. And so the wicked will be turned into ashes, not burnt continually for millions, for trillions and trillions of years, but God is going to put a total end to sin and to hell. All of the heartache and suffering is going to be over, all of the pain is going to be over, and when that happens, the purpose of hell fire is done. The fires go out and God makes a new heaven and a new earth. The Bible says that God is going to make, put an utter end to sin. So isn't the Bible clear when it says He will make an utter end of sin? Question number three, how can a loving God destroy those He loves? Well, John 3.16, the most quoted verse in all the world we all probably know it by heart, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, in this beautiful text is a key that helps us to understand, and it says, should not perish. When you think of perish, do you think of them continuing to live on? No, they're gone forever. They're gone. And so, God in love, He provides a way of salvation at infinite cost. He gave His Son because He did not want even one to perish, but all to have everlasting life. But He can't force someone to love Him in return. A loving God doesn't bring the unsaved to heaven where there is unselfish love because they are filled with selfish hate. And for Him to bring them there, it would he would have to do some cosmic surgery on their brain. God gives people the freedom of choice. Therefore, it is, He honors their choice. They have turned their back on Him, and they do not want His love. If they cling to sin, then they, along with their sin, are destroyed by the presence of His glory. The idea that God would punish them forever for a few years of uh, their hatred and rebellion is not from the Bible. It is a pagan doctrine that came into the church. And <laughs> you, you may wonder, well, you know, how did it come into the church and how come we don't know this now? Well, I'll tell you an illustration. So there was a mother, who, uh, or sorry, a little girl who was, and, and the mother who were cooking a, a pot roast. And... Uh, it was such a good pot roast. It just tasted so good. And, um, and so the, the little girl noticed how the mom would cut off each end of the pot roast, and then she would put it into the oven, right? And as she's preparing it, she said, Mother, why, did you, uh, why do you put the, cut the ends off of the pot roast? And she said, uh, Well, I don't know. I guess that's just because how my mother did it. 
but uh, her mother happened to be there, so she said, well, why don't you go ask Grandma? And so she went and asked Grandma, Grandma, why do you cut the ends off of the pot roast before you put it in? And she said, huh, well, I don't know. I guess I never thought about that. I, that's just how my mother did it. And so her mother happened to be there. And so she said, well, let's go ask, let's go ask uh, Grandma, Great Grandma. And so they went and asked, Great Grandma, how come you cut off the ends of the pot roast before you put it in the oven? And uh, she, she started to laugh a little bit, and she said, well, that's funny. She said, because when I, when I used, first started making pot roast, I had a pan that was too small. And so I would cut off each end for it to fit in the pan, and then I could put it in the oven. And she said, I, I guess I never really told my daughter and granddaughter that, and so they still do it today. So she started laughing. You know, so that's much like it is in the Christian church today, that how all of these, uh, these things came snuck into the church many years ago that we don't even question anymore. This pagan doctrine, it came into the church and sadly has turned many people away from God because of the teaching of error. And so here is what the early church, taking their pure faith from the Bible believed, Psalm 27, verse 20. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadow, vanish away into smoke, they shall vanish away. And so the Bible has many verses that indicate the temporary nature of hell. But what about the verses that describe, a permanent, describe it in permanent terms? What does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? The Bible does not contradict itself, right? So um, we're not advocating throwing those out, but we must understand those uh, a little better. And so we take it as a whole and we try to understand how all of it fits together. To see how this works, consider the use of the word eternal. So in taking, in ta when talking about the death of Christ on the cross... Hebrews 9, verse 20, verse 12, sorry, says, Now with the blood of goats and calves, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place for all, having obtained, so what kind of redemption is this? Eternal redemption, yes. So does this mean that Christ is still hanging on the cross? No, it doesn't. Jesus is not on the cross, but the act of the cross, the effects of the cross are eternal. Amen? And so we read in the same book, Hebrews 6, verse 2, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And so at the end of time, there will be a judgment. God doesn't keep judging through all of eternity. There will be only one judgment. The results of that judgment will be eternal. The results of the redemption of the judgment will be everlasting. The results of the cross are everlasting. Amen? Likewise, when God destroys the wicked, it is, it is eternal destruction and the results are everlasting. And so we see the same understanding emerge from Jude chapter 1 verse 7. It says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, 
are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And so Jude uses Sodom and Gomorrah as an example here. What kind of fire burned in Sodom and Gomorrah? They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. So are Sodom and Gomorrah burning tonight? No, they are not. But it was an eternal fire. So why is it not burning tonight? Because the effects of the fire were eternal. The fire came down from God out of heaven and consumed or burned up the violent cities. An eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal. The effects of that fire were eternal, not the flames of it. And so what about the everlasting punishment? Matthew 25, 45 through 46, it says, Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. All these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the Bible doesn't say everlasting punishing. It says everlasting punishment. And these two terms are not the same. Thankfully, because my kids, if they ever, when they have to get punished, they're not continuing to get punished for the one thing they did wrong. So you see the difference, right? Punishing, punishment. The Bible never speaks about an everlasting punishing. It's not God taking delight in punishing people without end. God does not sit upon His throne in heaven and say, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. You're burning, you're being consumed, you're burning in the flames because you're just getting what you deserved. I told you so. I tried to tell you. And then He comes back a thousand years later and He says, I told you so. And so on throughout eternity. What kind of God would do that? Are you willing as as a Christian to say that God takes delight in that? I'm not. <laughs> that He's going to keep people burning for trillions of years? The Bible is so plain on this subject. In fact, the Bible says in Philippians 3, 18 and 19, and that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction. The Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means an utter, to be utterly consumed, to be totally destroyed. It means to be completely annihilated. You know, if, uh, when we went to war, if we went to war and, and uh, you know, we, were, we, we conquered the, the, the other side and said, you know what, They're, we destroyed them. You know, their end is destruction, if we use that, those terms. Would we think that they're continuing to, to live on and continue in their same ways? No. They're, they're no more. They are no more. Matthew 7, verse 13. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. So the Bible teaches that the wicked are destroyed. The, the Bible is very plain about the fate of the wicked. 
You might want to take uh, pictures of these so you can look them up later because I'm going to go through them pretty quick. And uh, there's, um, there's about four or five, about five slides, I think, uh, going through all of these. All right, so as soon as you let me know your phones are ready to take pictures, follow the road, the wicked, fate of the wicked is they follow the road which leads to destruction. They suffer destruction, suffer everlasting destruction. The fate will be consumed. Uh, the fate of the wicked is they'll be consumed with, from the earth. They'll consume away. They'll be devoured. They will be no more, be no more forever. That both body and soul will be destroyed in hell. They will be destroyed, number 11. Number 12, be destroyed forever. Suffer the second death. Suffer death. They will die. They will be slain. They will be uprooted from the earth. Number 18, they will perish. Number 19, they will be burned up. Number 20, they will be turned to ashes. 21, be made a riddance or an end of. Be made an utter end of. And be cut off, be cut off from the earth. Melt with fervent. Be, dis be dissolved, be like corpses. Number 27, and then become dead bodies, vanish away from the earth that the soul will die, then does not have eternal life. And so, and then the last one, be as though they had never been. And so the one be, that they do not have eternal life, 1 John 3.15, it tells us that murderers don't have eternal life. Does God's word tell us that Satan is a murderer from the beginning? He does, doesn't he? So how could Satan have eternal life in hell if they don't have eternal life? Do you have a question? Yes. Yeah, there will be no more. But they will, there will be a time of suffering for them. So, and so... Uh, Number, uh, yeah, and then number 32, be as though they had never been in Ob Obadiah 16. And so th this here is a key text because the Bible says that it will be as though they had not been. God has given them the opportunity to live. God has given them the opportunity to enjoy life. And they've turned their backs on him. And a loving God cannot take them into heaven to start the rebellion, to start sin over again. A loving God has allowed them to live now. A loving God has appealed to them to be saved. But this loving God, He does the best a loving God can do. They are consumed in the presence of holiness. And they are consumed in the presence of righteousness. They suffer for their sins. Now, friends, don't misunderstand me. There is suffering in hell there is pain the greatest pain though isn't physical the greatest pain is that agony of knowing that I could have been in heaven I could have been inside that city I could have been rejoicing I could have lived with Christ forever eternal joy could have been mine now all is lost 
The last one, Satan will be totally destroyed. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Satan will be totally destroyed. Satan is gone. Evil angels are gone. Sin is gone. I praise God that sin is going to be gone forever and ever. Amen? But what about the concept of body and soul? Doesn't the body return to dust, but the soul goes to hell? Shall we ask Jesus that question? And can we trust Jesus to tell us the truth? I think we can. Matthew, 20, Matthew 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so according to Jesus, which part, parts of the person's body and soul wind up in hell? Both parts. That's correct. According to Jesus, both parts are there. Both parts are destroyed there. And so what about the biblical expression, unquenchable fire, though? This brings up a good question. Back to the Bible, Mark 9, 43 and 44 says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go into hell to the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm never dies, the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so many people point out this verse and they say, see, that's eternal fire. That's fire that's not quenched. Their worm doesn't die. Notice it doesn't say their immortal soul doesn't die. It says their worm doesn't die. So unquenchable fire is a fire that no human hands can put out. It burns totally until it consumes everything. And so here is the Bible proof for that. Jeremiah 17, 27. Then I will kindle a fire in, in its gates, and it shall devour the places of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. So where is this talking about? Jerusalem. And what type of fire burned in Jerusalem? An unquenchable fire, right? It says it shall not be quenched. So in both cases, one of the fires were started by the armies. They could not be put out until they had consumed the gates and the buildings in the city. So let me ask you a question. Is Jerusalem burning tonight? No. Has it burned for the last 2,000 years? No, not at all. But wasn't it an unquenchable fire? Yes. An unquenchable fire is one that no human hand can put out. The great goal of Jesus is to lovingly save men and women. But if they rebel against His salvation... An unquenchable fire is going to consume all sin in the universe. One day, not one ash of sin will remain. God is going to do a thorough job. God is going to do a complete job. And it will be done, we will be done with sin forever and ever. You know, so there is one type of hell that is not hot enough to keep burning. But there's another type of hell that burns so hot it burns everything up. And that's the type of hell that the Bible talks about, that it burns everything up. 
what happens when you put a log on the fire? Eventually there's ashes. It burns up. And then once that log is done burning, what happens to the fire? It dies out. Yes. Same thing. And so one day, the only thing that will reign will be holiness and righteousness. God will sit upon His throne with Jesus and the, the Holy Spirit. And believers who trust Him will live with Him through all of eternity. Sin will not remain in hell someplace. Sinners will not remain in hell someplace. The devil will not remain in hell someplace. None of that is going to remain because God wants it to be gone. And if God wants it gone, it's going to be gone. Now follow the line of reasoning carefully here though. Think this through. Before the rebellion in heaven, there was no taint of sin in the universe. There was no sickness or suffering or death. Do you think that God is not going to completely restore the universe? That He's going to leave a taint of sin, that, uh, of hell, continually burning? Do you think that God is going to leave the blot of sin in the universe? Do you think that God is going to leave the stain of sinners in the universe in a place called hell? But what about the Bible expression forever and ever? It says in Revelation... 14 verse 10, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever, and they have no rest day or night. Revelation 19.3 says, her smoke rises up forever and ever. So we've seen a list of Bible verses that describe the fires eventually going out. But here it clearly talks about their smoke going up forever and ever. Is there anything in the Bible that helps us to reconcile these two seeming opposite ideas? Do we throw out dozens of verses or try to understand what the Bible is teaching? We want to understand what the Bible is teaching, right? Not throw it out. And so what does the Bible mean when it says forever? Forever in the Bible can be translated. As until the end of the age. It sometimes refers to a limited time. Notice these examples. The Bible is regarding a slave in the Old Testament in Exodus 21 verse 6. And so, just so you guys know that uh, slaves in the Old Testament were, it was different than it was uh, here in America when we had slaves many, many years ago. But uh, they were different. It, the rules were different, and there were different types of slaves uh, then. Uh, anyways, don't have time to get into that. Exodus 21, verse 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the, door to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And so, pierced ears were a sign of being a slave. The pierced ear was a symbol of slavery. So the slave is going to serve his master forever, it says. But wait a minute. Do you mean that in the new earth the slave will be serving his master? Well, not at all. So what does it mean that he will serve him? It meant that as he would serve him as long as the slave lived. 
Notice the word forever is used in a touching story of, of Hannah dedicating her son to the priesthood. 1 Samuel 1.21 says, I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So for, forever, how long is that? Well, let's look in verse 28. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So here's the key. In verse 22, he would go up there forever. And in verse 28, it says that he would be there as long as he lives. And so the wicked are in the flames until the end of the age, until they are totally consumed and totally devoured, until they are burned up, until, until they are no longer living. When Christ comes the second time, the wicked, the unbelievers, are reserved to judgment. And so sometimes people ask about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is uh, from Jesus' own words where he says that a rich man was in a place of torment after he died. It was Jesus who said, we take it, uh, Jesus who said this, and so we want to take it seriously. We don't want to just pass over it, right? So this story was the fifth in sequence where Jesus taught that we cannot serve God and mammon or money in Luke 16. And so this is also in in the middle of several parables. So parables weren't meant to be taken literal, but to be symbolic. So in Luke 16, 19 through 27, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man who lived and ate luxuriously while a poor beggar named Lazarus would hope for a few crumbs to fall from the rich man's table or to from the rich man's table. Then both men die. Lazarus goes to meet Father Abraham while the rich man goes to a place of torment where he pleads for Abraham to send Lazarus with a little water to cool his tongue. And so the question simply comes down to how to interpret parables. If we must interpret all details of parables literally, then we must conclude that Abraham's bosom must be very large for all of the people who go to heaven to go there. And if this story is literal and the place we go is Abraham's bosoms, then how big is that going to be? He's more than just a giant. Uh, if you are a Christian and you believe that this is literal, then you believe that people in heaven can see people in hell and that they actually have conversations. But I don't know about you, but I don't want to have any conversations with people that are in hell, that's just cruel. I don't want to see any, anyone like that. And so if you say that this soul in hell uh, is talking about physical things, it's talking about fingers and eyes and tongues. You see, in the Old Testament, the Jews believed very clearly that riches were a sign of divine favor and that poverty was a sign of divine pleasure. Sorry, displeasure displeasure from God. And so this is actually where the prosperity gospel started. Jesus was not a rich man. He rode into town on a donkey. He was not able to relate to the lowest, or sorry, he was able to relate to the lowest in poverty. 
People today who live luxuriously make it harder to relate to and reach those who, li who are living in poverty. They limit themselves to only being able to reach the, the wealthy, and that is needed. But that's just, uh, they just limit themselves to that. And so uh, the wealthy is a smaller population. Jesus wanted to be able to reach everyone. Jesus turned it around, though, this parable, and he showed that God judges man on how they lived. And the writings of the Bible are sufficient to reveal our duty to our fellow man. The parable provided a vehicle for making the teaching startling clear to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, or to the Pharisees and all of the audience that were there. The Pharisees were familiar with this parable that Jesus gave. It wasn't a one that he just made up. He put a little twist on it. But uh, this parable can actually be traced all the way back to the times of Babylon. But like I said, Jesus put a different emphasis on it that uh, uh, when he told it this time and that targeted them specifically. And that's why they, were, they didn't like that parable. And so the scripture says clearly that the wicked will be as though they had not been. Sin destroys. It destroys our lives here and it will destroy them for all eternity. Jesus offers us the abundant life. Matthew 13, verse 50, And cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Why this mental agony? Because they know that what they could have had. They know that they could have lived. But now they are lost. Christ made provision to save every human being. Christ walked into the fires of hell and experienced it so we didn't have to. There was no smoke or flame on Calvary that day, but Christ tasted the mental agony of every lost soul. And it was on a cross that Christ, bearing the guilt of humanity, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There on the cross, he went through the pain, the suffering, the agony and condemnation, the weeping and gnashing of teeth that the soul separated from God will go through in the last judgment. Ezekiel eighteen twenty three says, Do I have pleasure at all that the wicked should die, said the Lord? and not that he should turn from his ways and live? What a question. Before the whole universe, he asks this question. Do I have ple any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? He answers it in verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord, therefore turn and live. God is pleading with us. He's saying, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. My fiery presence will consume and burn up sin at the end of time. Sin will be no more. And at the end of time, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Thank God because he reaches out to you and me. Thank God because he offers us life so that not one man, woman, boy, nor girl need to be lost. 
We don't have to experience that agony of being consumed in the flames. We don't have to experience the mental torture of what could have been. We don't have to have a life with a tragic ending, utterly consumed, burnt up, and turned to ashes. We can look forward to eternal life in Jesus. Amen? We can celebrate with gladness. We can rejoice through all eternity. Tonight, deep within your heart, if you say, if you want to say, Lord, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you for the truth that sin will not remain, will be consumed. Thank you for the truth that sin will be destroyed forever. Thank you for the truth that God's plan of love will sweep the entire universe clean from sin. Thank you for the truth that you don't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. You reach out to us with an invitation to live, to enjoy life in all of its abundance, in all of its fullness. Friends, would you like to bow your heads in prayer with me? And say, Lord, tonight, thank you that sin can be done away with forever. And then lift up your head to heaven and say, Lord, count me in. I want to live with you through all eternity. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this truth, for helping to clarify what really takes place. And Lord, it's that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that you're pleading with us to turn from sin and live. Lord, you've given us everything that we need to turn from sin. You've given us hope. You've given us grace. Because where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And we can rely on you to help us to overcome. Lord, thank you. We want to spend eternity with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.